Welcome to the Delling Pod with me, James Dellingpod. And I know I always say I'm excited about this week's special guest, but look, behold, before me, it is one of your most requested guests. It's James Corbett, presenter of the Corbett Report. James, welcome to the Delling Pod. Thank you for having me here, James. And let me just hijack the conversation immediately off the top to note mm. how interesting it is that we are here engaged in this televideo conversation because, as you may or may not know, uh, I since the very inception of my work over at CorbettReport.com, I've been covering the climate science mess, uh, including ClimateGate and everything. I was running ClimateGate.tv at one point. So I am very familiar with your work on that issue and have been for a long time. However, I never thought that we would actually connect like this because, and I do not mean this as a slight against you, more so as a slight against my own obvious lack of judgment of character, but I thought you seemed a little bit too mainstream in a lot of your ideas to ever entertain talking to someone like myself. And yet here I am. So thank you very much for having me here. Oh, uh, James, that's really weird. I think there's gonna, so many people, um, particularly, I, I suppose, my newer listeners um, are, are surprised by my my um, turn of direction because I was. I mean, I'm probably I'm probably the most mainstream guy who's now in the realm that might. Well, I think we know the word. Let's let, let's not use it. Let's, let, let's let's not let's not demean our work because we know that we are we're just seekers after truth. Um, yeah, I think that climate change was my gateway drug as well to 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 where we are. I mean, you you remember I, I wrote that book Watermelons, and I set out to answer the question. Sorry, this is, you, this is now you interviewing me, but I'll just give you my explanation. I, so I set out to write this book Watermelons, where I set out to ask uh, answer the question: Okay, if catastrophic man-made climate change isn't really a thing if it's just a kind of invention how many how come so many people believe in it and and more importantly what's their motivation and it's the motivation thing which i find the hardest thing to explain what we're about to talk about now and also the hardest thing because it is extraordinary isn't it that you've got all the the world's policymakers the the world's corporations the world's corporate law firms the world's ngos all pushing this complete lie about climate change there is no evidence at all i think you'll agree with me on this one there is no evidence at all that that man-made warming is uh potentially catastrophic that the the temperature changes are unprecedented that any of it, it's completely made up and if you went into a classroom and ask a child about the planet and about climate change they would tell you they would repeat the mantra of lies absolutely unquestioningly yeah and we would perhaps expect that from a group of children but unfortunately it's even more pronounced in the elderly and supposedly well-educated yeah 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 so how long have you been down the rabbit hole james <laughs> out of interest <laughs> Uh, that's a good question. And I guess in some senses, depending how you want to frame that, I guess I've never completely had faith in authority, but more realistically, I would pinpoint my experience, my journey down the proverbial rabbit hole around the time, I would say around late 2006 was when I really started to realize, oh, I think the paradigm that I have uh, been living in most of my life is completely wrong. I clearly have an incorrect uh, map of this terrain that I'm living on. So I better I better come to a better understanding of it. And that was, as I'm sure many people can relate to, a profoundly disorienting experience for several months, not knowing what was up and what was down and what was left and right and what's going on. And in that process of falling down that rabbit hole and realizing the extent to which I had been lied to actively and or through omission um, by the everything, the mainstream media, the education system, et cetera, uh, I, I, I realized, oh, I, I'm not going to wait for some sort of savior to come along and put this all right. I think I have to start spreading this information to others because, hey, look, we're in the internet age. I, as a lowly English teacher in Japan, as I was at that time, I can start doing this. And I did with a $20 microphone on a beat up old laptop that was barely functional. But I started a 
podcast that has now reached millions of people around the world. I cannot still to this day, I cannot fathom how that happened, but it happened. And I think that's a testament to the power of the revolution that we've just experienced in the past couple of decades and the reason they are coming to clamp down on all forms of free expression online. Yes, it is. It's a race against time, isn't it? To get the information out and to wake enough people up before. Yes. I don't know. I mean, I don't know what we're going to do about it. Do you, do you, do you think we're, we're not going to be able to do our shows fairly soon? It's a possibility. I think there will always be ways of getting this information out, but it yeah. will become more and more difficult and certainly more fringe. The ability to, for myself, for example, to release a documentary that would be seen over a million times, maybe in the past, considering I have had my main YouTube channel, of course, completely removed. My secondary channel, I am currently on a one-week strike. Um, my first strike, official strike against my backup channel. What's I will your, be What's off. your backup? Is that uh, a Corbett Report Extras is the name of the channel. So um, people can see that I'm still on YouTube, sort of, but obviously that's not the way to follow me. To be frank, I'm surprised that you are on YouTube uh, at all, <laughs> let alone that I believe it's the only place you post your videos. Is that correct? No, no, no. I've, I've pretty much, get, I, I've had to give up on YouTube um, for, for that oh. reason. They they gave me okay. a strike against one of my shows with... Um, with Laura, Laura uh, Perrins, my, my um, chinwag. And right. I thought, well, if they can strike that, they can strike anything I do because it's all, yep. it's all toxic as far as they're concerned. Yep. And I didn't really want to be able to put them in a position where they could strike, strike me again, uh, yet again. So I tend to put stuff on Rumble and um, Vimeo, although I think that's quite compromised, and um, Odyssey. I like the fact yes, that it's got, a, it's got a crypto thing on it. I did not see your Odyssey channel, so I'll have to look for that. And yeah, Odyssey's Odyssey's quite good. I mean, I, I like yeah. these library tokens that you get. I just, yeah. I mean, will they be worth anything? I don't know. Um, before we go on, I wanted to ask you about Japan. Um, I've never been to Japan. I wonder whether I'll, I'll even be able to go there now because we, we we've all had to kind of give up on our dreams of traveling the world. I think it's it's kind of over, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I know you like to talk about the colors of pills on this podcast, and I'm afraid I certainly don't have any white pills to dispense for you today, um, yeah. or even light colored pills. I will not dispense black pills because if I was going to do that, I might as well just cu curl up in the corner and die. Um, I think there must be some hope, but it is, uh, it is definitely going to get worse before it gets better. And yes, I seriously question the next time I will be able to set foot outside of this country that has become my adopted country. Not a bad place to, to have ended up though. I would have thought it, it, it just, we can answer that more fully later on, but Japan seems to be not so great resetty, not so cabal, but I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. In a sense, yes. And there are multiple reasons for that. I believe one of which is that the Japanese people generally are so Conditioned, I think, through feudal experience that bled into the latest iteration of essentially a feudal order that still exists here, but it's a corporate order um, that the, the I think the owner class that exists in Japan tends to think of the people more as the way a, a shepherd might affectionately think of his sheep rather than simply as a rancher who's looking to slaughter some pigs or something. No, th these are sheep we want to take care of so that they will be kind to us. And it, it's more of that feeling. It's still very much a position of ownership to the point where, unfortunately, I think, uh, I believe it was MacArthur uh, observed during the, uh, the post-war um, uh, administration of Japan that this is a nation of children. And unfortunately, that seems a pretty apt observation in some ways. All you need is a cuddly cartoon character to be the public face of some sort of, you know, campaign. Now, everybody, let's wear masks and social distance. And most people will comply most of the time. So, yes, the, 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 certainly it's not the jackpot on the face is not the way that the Japanese system tends to operate. But it is, unfortunately, very broadly similar in its results. Right, right. And another question I have to ask you, are you a fan, as I am, of Midnight Diner? Have you even seen I it? I don't even know the reference. What what is this? It's a oh, it's you've got to check it out. Or maybe you don't watch TV. It's on it's on Netflix. Um, no. it's a about a a noodle bar. 
and the goings on in the in the noodle bar, and it's 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 very charming. It's got a lovely theme tune. I must admit, I haven't watched a TV show in a couple of decades, so <laughs> I am well out of the loop. Ah, oh, well, actually, let's let's go there. I mean, I love I love where, just going where the conversation leads. Um, TV. I mean, it's it's full of what it seems to me now fairly overt signs and symbols that are designed to lead us astray. But there's also stuff, isn't there, going on underneath the, the in in terms of the, the the sound waves and sort of hidden signals. Is that right? There are there is, certainly is research uh, about the type of alpha uh, wave brain state that television technology has been designed to induce in people. And just anecdotally, of course, I think. I think we can all relate to the experience of looking away from the TV screen at the other people watching TV and noticing the state of semi-hypnosis those people seem to be in more than just being engaged in a story. They seem to be engaged by the screen itself. Um, Having said that, I don't have any of that particular data and scientific research to back that up on me at the moment. But certainly for, I mean, all of recorded human history, story has been the way to most effectively shape the consciousness of a people. And of course, we understand this going all the way back to Greek drama and the the sorts of stories that are being told that are shared and and understood together tend to form our understanding of the world and then to influence the way we act in the world. So that it's it's sort of a feedback loop, um, culturally speaking. And I think it would be naive of us to think that the people who are literally paying the bills for these types of programs are not aware of the incredible power that these stories have in shaping our consciousness and are not actively working to bring about the types of stories that will lead to the most pliant and pliable people uh, for them. Now, that can take surprising forms, I think. Um, uh, Something that I've grappled with, I I used to do a series, I don't tend to do it so often anymore, but I had a series on film, literature, and the New World Order where I examined T- uh, television, movies, and uh, and books for their propagandistic value and or predictive programming value. Yes. Interesting concept. So the idea here is something that is at least ostensibly on the surface, a warning of a possible dystopia that we might be heading into may on another level actually be preparing us for that reality. It seems inevitable once it arrives. And from that perspective, so much dystopian science fiction seems almost like it's designed to get us to expect we are heading into 1984. Oh, this is Brave New World. Oh, this is, I saw this on, say it with me, Black Mirror. I've still never seen an episode of Black Mirror, but every single time I bring up certain concepts like social credit, I will get several emails from people. That's just like that Black Mirror episode. So I I don't know how that exactly works, but there's clearly a profound effect on people's psyche from that. I suppose the most obvious recent example of that is the Channel 4 series Utopia. You may have seen it referenced. Um, Utopia describes, well, one of the one of the subplots is that is that they fake a pandemic in order Mm. to persuade everyone to take this the cure for the pandemic, which turns out to be a um, a depopulation drug. It's designed to stop people um, being fertile now. How did that creep into a Channel 4 drama series? The guy who wrote it, I don't think, is, you know, he's he's got a track record of writing, you know, decent dramas, but nothing sort of out of the ordinary. So where does it come from? Uh, I, I would hesitate to start to immediately say that this is planted propaganda so much as the fact that I think artists and writers and others do pick up on the general zeitgeist in a certain way and that there clearly has been over the last decade or so there's been a mainstreaming of conspiracy theorizing um that has again through that feedback loop both influenced and been influenced by popular culture and i think there are definitely writers that are picking up on that and understanding i think there's been a, a a huge a quantum leap if you will in understanding of certain basic ideas basic from sort of the rabbit hole side of things about false flag terrorism and these types of ideas, which would have been almost unthinkable a couple of decades ago. Why would the government attack itself was the standard line when I first started researching this sort of thing. Now it seems most people at least understand the concept 
And I think there are writers who pick up on that. So I I wouldn't know. I haven't at all researched Utopia, but it reminds me just off the top of my head. It sounds like the Lone Gunman pilot episode. Are you familiar with that? Tell me. So it was in the spring of 2001. I don't know the exact month. I want to say March that on U.S. television, the Lone Gunman series uh, pilot aired and this is a spinoff of the X-Files series, which <laughs> now this is the funny part. I have still to this day never seen an X-Files episode, yeah. <laughs> which may be surprising to people, but it's true. Anyway, uh, this was a spinoff um, focusing on, I guess, these three guys that were part of the X-Files universe. But this is their show. And the pilot episode involved uh, basically a government plan. What they discover is a certain elements within the government had a plan to hijack a a commercial aircraft by remote control and fly it into the World Trade Center in order to start a war in the Middle East um, to drum up business, essentially. And this aired six months before 9-11, which in and of itself is rather odd, isn't it? But beyond that, um, one of the actors from that series uh, later appeared in the independent media to say, oh, you know, well, Chris Carter used to hang around at these, you know, cocktail parties in LA and there were CIA people there that gave him story ideas from time to time. I know that happened. So dot, 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 put, put two and two together. I don't know. Again, I, I, it's not definitive, but clearly there is some sort of culture creation industry that really does have military and intelligence ties. Yes. And I wonder, I mean, we know that there are bad people out there. We know that there are forces of evil black hats you can call them there must be people on our side surely at a high level do you think have you ever thought about that yeah of course of course and where are they now is the question yes um at any rate i am certainly not a proponent of some sort of monolithic monolithic conspiracy theory where everything is controlled by this one person or one group and they control everything that happens i think that's far too simplistic and childish yeah. there clearly are different factions that at the very least compete with each other for relative power within the system so i think i mean there has to be at least some sort of adversarial role played by different people within that power structure are any of them really on the side of humanity itself? I guess that remains to be seen. I mean, yeah. yes, the ultimate dream would be for some consummate insider to step forward and blow open the whole paradigm and reveal it all in broad daylight in a way that can't be dismissed, but we'll believe it when we see it, right? Yeah. Okay. So let's let's start at the beginning. What do you think's going on and when did it start? How How far back does it go? Yeah, well, that question is endlessly fascinating and way beyond my ken. Um, I I mean, I generally say something like, well, we, I mean, at the very least, we know for a century, there's been all this talk about depopulation and things like this. Could it be centuries? Could it be millennia? Surely, yes. At the very least, we can locate the sort of desire for control of the globe is clearly the desire of every tyrant throughout history. and. Alexander the Great and everyone else wanted to control as much of the globe as they could. This is an age-old quest. So that, at the very least, is is sort of the basic level of this that we can understand going back a long, long time. But this particular incarnation of what is happening right now, again, it depends how narrowly you want to define it. Right now, we are living through the the implementation of a biosecurity state, which is predicated on technocratic constructs that you could trace the intellectual and and academic lineage back to the 1930s, 1920s, 30s, as it was being developed by people like uh, Howard Scott. Howard Scott? Am I making that name up? (laughs) Sounds plausible. Uh, And and, uh, Hubbard. uh, Uh, What's his name? Yeah. um, You know, the shell oil uh, geologist who came up with Hubbard's Peak, all of that. All of that's pseudoscience, as I'm sure you know. M.K. Hubbard. But he also helped develop technocracy he he wrote essentially the the technocratic study he invented the idea of peak oil for example right um yeah exactly so we could trace it back there and we could talk about technocracy and what that is and how that developed and so we could do that but then again i think technocracy is just the latest iteration of uh, a sort of uh, general apologia for the ruling class um that in the most recent incarnation, say the last 130 years or so, has taken the form of eugenics, which morphed into 
the environmental movement, the conservation movement slash the environmental movement that became the global warming push of the 80s, 90s, early 2000s, that is morphing into the techno technocratic biosecurity state. And all of these things, there is a direct historical relation. In fact, I explicitly pointed that out in my work on big oil, how big oil conquered the world and why big oil conquered the world. I traced that historical lineage from the, the monopolization, obviously, of petroleum as a resource in the 19th century, but how that, that control over that resource was used as a leverage um, by big philanthropy um, to essentially gain control over various sectors of the economy and health, the health industry as we know it today, the, uh, the allopathic medicine that we practice, generally speaking, in the West, has its roots largely in that Rockefeller medical industrial complex that was largely created in the late 19th, early 20th century. And that, uh, and the very same families that were involved in the eugenics movement and funding that, uh, that science, pseudoscience in not only the United States, but of course in Nazi Germany and elsewhere, um, are the exact same families and the exact same names, uh, literal card-carrying eugenicists who go on to find found such things as the World Wildlife Federation which then steers the environmental movement and growing environmental consciousness towards carbon dioxide. Everything is about carbon dioxide. Yep. So that that then makes humanity the enemy of man, as the Club of Rome wrote, of course, in the first yes. global revolution. Humanity will be the enemy of man. And that's exactly what this is about. It is about making humanity essentially desire the death of humanity. Yay. If you wanted to eliminate a large number of people from the planet, you could do no better than to make them want it themselves. And I think that is the underlying thread of all of this that we're seeing. The biosecurity state is just the latest implementation of that in which I'm sure as you and your audience well are well aware by now, you will be completely and utterly limited in what you can do, where you can go, how you can interact with others based on the health pass, which, of course, within a, a few milliseconds of being implemented, will become the social credit slash digital currency slash everything else pass tied to your blockchain identity. And you will be essentially a, not even a human being. You will be a biodigital entity that will more and more be merged into this technocratic overlay of control. All of this sounds so outlandish. And yes. I realize from a third person perspective, listening to this without having looked at any of these documents, it sounds utterly insane because in a sense it is, it is essentially anti-life, anti-human, but this is what we are staring square in the face right now. And it's part of this historical continuity of agenda that at, at any rate, I have specifically looked into for the last 130 years. As I say, I think it's part of a millennial old quest to essentially conquer the, the globe as it exists. Yes. I think you, you've, you've outlined the problem very well there, that we've all been trained from birth through an education system, which you and I and our listeners probably know to be slightly more compromised than we thought it was at the time, um, slightly more controlling in a particular direction. But we, we, we grew up, we, we're all born blue-pilled, aren't we? We all imagine the world is as, as we see it. We imagine that essentially it's a benign world, that, that, that you are rewarded for hard work um, and that you, you pay off your mortgage, you get your nice home and you pass it on to your, your children and so on. And, you, and you, uh, yeah, you have, you have progeny and you have grandchildren to look forward to. Um, and when you discover that this is not the case, it's quite a shock. I remember, you know, you refer to false flag operations. I remember when I first heard of the concept being really cross with the idiots who could believe in such a thing because it was, it's this irrational thing. It comes back to why would they do it? What possible motivation would, because governments are made up of human beings. I mean, loads of my university contemporaries went to, you know, are now in government. I was as weirdly, coincidentally, a sort of golden generation where half the people in power now were at university with me and some of them with my friends. I didn't think of them as psychopaths. I thought they, they shared exactly the same ideals as me. They were, they were clubbable. They were, they were my friends. I didn't think there was anything weird and sinister about them. So it's very, very hard, I think, for most people who've got connections with people in, in power or whatever to make the the leap to, to thinking these people would actually conspire in the destruction of their own civilization and their own people. 
Uh, and it gets even weirder when you think they are doing it on behalf. They are acting as the useful idiots of a sort of uber elite. What would you call? I mean, I call them the cabal. For, for what, what do you call these 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 forces of power? They them those is as good a term as any. I would say um, what you say is extremely important, and in fact, that goes back to what I alluded to earlier, never quite trusting authority, because I think this is all retrospective, but after having fallen down the rabbit hole, I do, I do recall thinking back to uh, an experience I had in junior high. I have no idea what the English equivalent of junior high is, but anyway, about 14 years old or so. And in our social studies course, we, um, we had to come up with an editorial cartoon, you know, read the daily newspaper, look at the type of editorial cartoons and make one of your own about something that's in the news. And there was something passing through the newswires that particular time um, regarding the Canadian elections that were happening at that time. And uh, you may recall Jean Chrétien, who was prime minister of Canada throughout much of the 1990s. And at that time, there was a, a, a conservative ad that was running about this liberal candidate for prime minister um, that was... By today's standards, it's the mildest thing you've ever seen. But at the time, it seemed over the line because they showed, they dwelt on still images of the face of Jean Chrétien, which people might know he had Bell's palsy, he had part of his face paralyzed. And it was seen like they were trying to make fun of his appearance, essentially, because they were really dwelling on pictures of his face. And this, it was seen to be over the line. And uh, there was, I, I remember to this day, I remember all of the media coverage about this, this attack ad, this vicious con- conservative party attack ad. And, and so I, my idea for an editorial cartoon was a, a newsreader sitting there at his desk reading the news. And he says, and it's been discovered that the, uh, the vicious attack ad by the conservative party was actually written by a liberal campaigner within the conservative party. And in my confused 14 year old head, what I was trying to essentially outline was some sort of false flag idea that essentially a liberal had gone into the conservative camp and, you know, Hey guys, this would be a good ad to run. And then, you know, laughing behind the scenes as it blows up in their face. I think that was an early iteration of that idea. So on some level, I think even children can kind of understand the concept. Yes. But then as you get older, and certainly as the stakes are raised, I mean, when we start talking about international spectacular terror events and things, yes, I mean, then it starts to defy credulity. How could anyone actively be engaged in doing that against their own people, their own country, et cetera, et cetera. And it does definitely take a, a sort of a, a recontextualization at any rate. But I think it's important to, to directly address your experience. Yes, these were my friends and these are now people in positions in government. They're, they're not psychopaths. They weren't bloodlust, crazy people. So how can this be? And I think that speaks to our fundamental, again, I think lack of understanding of the, the power structure that exists and how it operates. I certainly would not want people to come away from my work thinking that I believe the government for example, participates in these types of events and Mm. the government does it. And everyone, every MP and every local dog catcher and everyone is, is complicit in this in an, in a knowing way. Of course not. No, no, no. Of course there's compartmentalization and this sort of thing. And I think we see that most explicitly in this current context in the way that clearly, I don't think everyone in, in the UK government is sitting there, you know, how can we best to implement the biofascist security grid? Yeah. Of course not. They are listening to the experts. And the experts are coming from the World Health Organization with, you know, China whispering in their ear and Bill Gates at their other side. But whatever. Anyway, it's the World Health Organization. And we all know they're above board. So we will take their concerns and we will implement them. Yeah. And so we're starting to see, oh, maybe these national governments aren't the be all and end all of this system. Maybe there are powers that are above them. But until we really start to break through those mental barriers that we all have, feeling that, well, it's just, you know, it's my friend. These, these aren't evil people. No, they may not be evil people, but they are in, a, in a, a fundamentally warped and in many ways psychopathic institution. And as you say, become useful idiots for an agenda that they themselves probably but dimly understand. Yes, I think it is that it, it's that well, well, a point well made, psychopathic. That's This is why we have difficulty rationalizing what they do because we are not psychopaths most of us and they are psychopaths and uh to, let's talk about about bill gates because i you've you, you've done a lot of deep diving on 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 bill gates and i think a lot of people in 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 the blue pill world think of the they look at bill gates and they think well he's 
he looks a bit like Woody Allen. You know, he's a bit sort of frail. He wears he wears sweaters, comfy sweaters. A guy who wears cozy sweaters and looks a bit geeky cannot threaten me. And he's obviously, you know, he's a philanthropist. And what's not to like about philanth- philanthropists? Yes, excellent. Very good question. That is to the point. And that really, honestly, that we can even ask that speaks to the power of PR and what it has accomplished over the past two decades. Because I know that before I really went deep, deep into my deep dive on Gates uh, last year, for people who don't know, I did a four part, two hour documentary called Who is Bill Gates? Um, before I did that, I, I was I was talking about Gates on on my podcast. And even my listeners, people who you would think would generally be on board with the kinds of ideas I was talking about. We're saying, well, Gates, what are you talking about? Gates is is a well-liked man and he's just trying to help people out. And I I had to actually explicitly point out to even some of my own listeners, do you remember the 1990s? Because I I certainly do remember when Bill Gates was, you know, of course, framed in a certain context, it's the evil evil capitalist who's trying to, you know, monopolize everything, etc. But at any rate, it was that idea. This was this horrible, ruthless businessman that was only interested in money and was giving you crap products. No one liked Bill Gates. He was not a, hey, everyone everyone loves Bill. No, of course not. But over the past, really the past decade, but the past couple of decades, broadly speaking, the multi-billion dollar PR effort brought to you by Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Inc., um, has, has largely painted Gates as some sort of saint. And that is finally starting to crumble now that the divorce debacle is playing out. But until that point, and now, of course, we see the the New York Times and and all these major uh, publications coming out and saying, well, we all knew there were these kinds of allegations about Bill, but no one wanted to say anything because they didn't want to lose access to the foundation and to Microsoft. Yeah, exactly. And I think anyone with two brain cells to rub together can see that. Do these mainstream media people really believe that we're all just completely trusting whatever they say? Oh, oh, well, they're telling us Gates is a great guy. And and yeah, he's paying them money on a regular basis, but that can't have anything to do with it. I mean, honestly, it's insulting to my intelligence, and I assume most people out there, that the, the mainstream media is so far up their own posterior that they they believe that we believe them. <laughs> but at any rate, yeah, that image has been constructed, carefully constructed over a couple of decades. And again, I will bring it back to my work uh, on big oil, where I, I explicitly, I see the exact parallels with what the Rockefeller fam- family did, converting John D. Rockefeller, who was the image, as much as Gates was the hated evil monopolist in the 90s, John D. Rockefeller was a thousand times that back in the 1890s. Um, and he invented the PR industry as we know it today with Ivy Ledbetter Lee. And it's explicitly for the purpose of taking all of that money and converting it into social capital and things that he could use to transform society through philanthropy and setting up the big corporate foundations. And uh, that's not just a sort of parallel that's going on. That's a deliberate sort of archetype that the Gates were working from. If you go and read um, uh, Bill Gates Sr.'s autobiography, he explicitly says, yes, we we looked at the Rockefeller and their, what they did, and we, we explicitly modeled what we were doing on them. And everywhere we went in the field of global public health, the Rockefellers were there first. And so there's, I mean, there's more than just a sort of contingent, oh, that's an interesting parallel. No, there's a, an actual explicit game plan that was being followed here for Gates. Yes. So those words, public health, I mean, What's not to like about public health? You know, if, <laughs> if, if, we go, if, if we are but cattle or, or whatever, if, if our job is to – I think, I think have you, you must have seen The Time Machine, um, the course, yeah. Eloy and the Morlocks, mm-hmm. and, we are, and we are Eloy um, sort of being treated like cattle ready to go into the caves where the Morlocks will devour us. No, oh, right. Yes. Yeah. These horrible cave dwelling savage creatures. Yeah. I was thinking, are we the Morlocks? No. Okay. We're no, the Eloy. I think we're the, I think we, in this scenario, we are the Eloy, but those words, public health, it, it, I, I, philanthropy, it's a lovely word, philanthropy and, and, and public health, nothing to, nothing to disagree with there. So they're very good at spotting what our weaknesses are, what our desires the, I mean, in England, in, in the UK, we have the problem of, of our national religion being the, the National Health Service. Yeah. It, yeah. It, and, and talking about marketing campaigns, a very successful marketing campaign has been conducted over the years to persuade ourselves that 
National Health Service, this sclerotic, Stalinist, corrupt uh, healthcare system, is synonymous with with health. That there is the, that it's either the NHS or lying in a pool of you know buboes and vomit, you know, and dying horribly, uncared for. Yeah. It's not like that, but they've they've successfully done that. And in the same way, I think um, by by taking control of this this uh, this notion of public health the, the rockefellers first and then the the gates is of they're just preying on our naivety aren't they they are and unfortunately i mean this this is as close to a black pill as i can deliver um but unfortunately that's almost the the good side of this insofar as if only they were just identifying what would be easiest to prey on the public yeah. and and going after that. Oh, well, here's, oh, they like public health. Okay, let's go into that field. If only it were that. But unfortunately, I think specifically the field of public health and the biosecurity state that's coming into view is absolutely linchpin to the deeper part of this agenda that goes way beyond any sort of novel spreading coronavirus or anything into the heart of the long-term agenda which I, I, I've been talking about this actually for the entirety of the Corbett Report in bits and pieces here and there. But it's only now that I see, of course, the biosecurity state is the way that they will get this enacted. And I'm speaking specifically about transhumanism and the end of the human species. And I've been trying to ring this alarm bell um, for the, at least the past couple of months as I start to see the pieces falling into place. And one document that I've been on about quite a bit recently, but I will, I'll, I'll, at the risk of boring my own audience, I will inform your audience about a, a document from Policy Horizons Canada, which is a government of Canada future forward uh, thinking think tank um, that focuses on you know, future trends and what policy decisions should the government of Canada be making about them. They released a document in February of 2020 on exploring biodigital convergence that is absolutely chilling really when you know that this is part of the longer term agenda but they are openly talking about the types of technologies that are starting to merge the biological world and the digital world in a way that um as they say will cause us to redefine what it means to be human they themselves are saying this in official government of canada think tank uh, documents and the type of picture they are painting of this potential future they call it an optimistic vision of the future and they paint the, the for example they have this narrative about a typical day and waking up and checking your various bodily sensors and oh the building across the street grew a couple of floors last night because the biobots were building up you know some sort of special uh, reinforced uh, bio skin on the top of the building next door and and they're growing trees as part of their carbon offsets and oh i have have to get my kid's tooth taken for epigenetic uh, marker testing so that I can get my health re uh, rebate or whatever and all these sorts of things. And they're painting this as some optimistic version of the future. It is truly the nightmare that we're stepping into. And that is exemplified most obviously right now in the vaccine. Yes. Which, of course, mRNA technology for manipulating the building blocks of our our life, essentially, what Moderna has specifically and for years on the record called the software of life. We are hacking the software of life yes. is the way that they were trying to openly sell this in TED Talks and other things for the last several years. They are now getting to experiment on the human species at a mass level. Millions, hundreds of millions, if they get their way, billions of people will be injected with this experimental technology that is really starting to play around with who we are at the species level. And I really cannot stress it, how important this is to the longer term agenda, because none of this sort of transhumanist, let's all put nanobots in our body and do, you know, all this kind of craziness, none of it would be accepted unless there was a convincing narrative to go along with it. And sadly, I think this biosecurity narrative that they're they're drilling into the population is exactly precisely what they need to break down our fundamental ickiness at the very least the icky factor towards this technology. Most people have that barrier that they will not cross. Yeah, okay, I like my smartphone, but you're not going to put a brain chip in me and monitor yes. me every second of every day from inside unless there's a spreading pandemic virus and we now we have to change everything this is their ticket towards that future and that uh, that should be chilling it really should be the people who 
behind this must have must be laughing into their into their socks mustn't they i mean they must be thinking how did we how did they fall for this because i I mean well look to you and me it seems obvious i think most of our listeners it seems obvious but we are we are the less we have to admit this we we are a minority most people have just fallen for this hook line and sinker yeah. And uh, you just made an H.G. Wells reference, so allow me to make one of my own. And noting parenthetically, of course, H.G. Wells, an avowed eugenicist who was yeah. also clearly proto-technocrat. I guess there wasn't a technocratic movement when he was still advocating for it, but wanted a world state run by engineers and scientists for the brotherhood of of science and all of this kind of nonsense. Um, but uh, And who wrote the draft of what became the UN Declaration of Human Rights, which is just so wonderful and feel good. And oh, all of these wonderful rights they guarantee until you get to the second last article, which is unless any of this is used in a way that the UN doesn't approve of, in which case we revoke all your rights. Oh, wait, what What did you just say? Anyway, um, H.G. Wells, uh, not the time machine, but uh, War of the Worlds. What fell to the aliens in the end? It was just common everyday bacteria. Just, you know, uh, there it is. That's what got, it wasn't all the nukes and all the weaponry and all the pizzazz. No, it was just regular old viruses and germs got those aliens. And essentially, maybe they just took a, a, a play from that playbook. You know, not even, not even something that actually is the, the new plague or whatever, but literally a, a variant of the common cold is in the same class anyway as the the common cold and haha we'll we'll shut down the entire world economy we'll reset everything we'll we'll start implementing a completely new way of looking at human beings and the ways that we can experiment on the human population based on this yes who you could imagine the people responsible for this laughing yeah well a, a virus which hasn't even been isolated is that right it, it we've only seen little bits of it uh, we haven't seen the whole the whole virus has been isolated, which which suggests to me that, well, <laughs> what does it suggest that it's not really real? I mean, there's obviously a nasty bug going around, but yeah, um, yes, and there's a lot to be said on that uh, topic and the way that we define isolation, and we can get into Koch's postulates and other such things um, that are being discussed right now, and it deserves to be discussed. My my sense is that uh, that conversation is being used to steer people into a a ditch that has been placed in the road. Um, essentially, yeah. the look at these look at these people. I mean, this is the equivalent of oh yeah, you're going to say nine eleven was an inside job. All right, well, hey, actually, it was all holograms and there were no planes and nothing happened and no one died on nine yeah, eleven. And yeah. ha ha ha! Look at these crazy conspiracy theorists. Yeah. See, they're all nutters. They're all insane. So unfortunately, I think this is parallel to that conversation. Um, but uh, yes, I mean. There, there is clearly a lot of quackery and fakery going on with the way that the the dread over this the, this virus has been inculcated in the population mm. to such an extent that people are quaking in their boots over it. Um, whereas, of course, again, contrast to people's day to day experience, uh, and and there are moments even within the mainstream media reporting on this, where you get that that sense of what's really going on. I remember about a year ago, there was a famous, I, I want to say it was BBC, at any rate, it was, it was definitely an English station that was uh, interviewing someone, I believe in Italy, a doctor, and uh, they were t- trying to talk about the, the hospitals being overwhelmed and everything. Yes. And he said, no, they're not overwhelmed. It's just that we're shutting everything down. So they limited capacity we have is being filled but that's just that that's a trick i mean that's not really there is there isn't people dying on the street this isn't this the type of pandemic you're trying to portray and of course immediately well it was nice talking to you yes we'll have to cut the connection now i mean that's of course that's the way this type of trickery works so there's there's all sorts of trickery on this statistical and otherwise and people are right to question absolutely every aspect of this um but but my point since the beginning really has always been, I think we have to confront this at the level at which the, the narrative is being um, leveled at the public, which is to say, let's say there is this spreading pathogen that is transmissible and it will kill a certain number of people. If that happens, what rights are the government allowed to take from you? 
what what is the actual principle that we should be working from here? Let's say this really was bubonic plague 2.0. This really was killing people. Does the government have the right to come in and forcibly confine you to your home? Hmm. And, and if so, okay, well, let's have that discussion. And what is the threshold? And how do we determine that? And who gets to set those rules? And uh, But that isn't really the conversation they want us to have. They just want us to internalize and accept that that is the principle. It's a pandemic, so we have to do this. And there's no discussion around the parameters that we're all apparently just supposed to go along with here. Yeah, you're right. Uh, interesting that the techniques they use to they set these traps for you designed to sometimes they're designed to trap you and 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 make you look and to discredit you and sometimes they're kind of how many angels can dance on the head of pin arguments i mean for example the climate change debate there are people who who get obsessed by um forcings and 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 um the 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 the, the wavelengths that and this is incredibly esoteric, which is designed yeah. for specialists. And yeah. it, in no wise should, should ordinary people get distracted by this because it's much more basic than that. But it's endlessly, they've, they've created this world yeah. in which... And, yeah, specifically on that. I mean, it's interesting because I, of course, that has been my, of all the things I've ever said in my entire career, that has been the one that continues to get the most pushback, um, even from people who would otherwise be part of my audience and on board with my message, but climate change, no, 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 we're not being lied to about that. And it's interesting, the sort of pincher movement that the critics always have on that. It's that you're not addressing the science enough. No, no, you're not. You're just talking about in generalities. And then when I do very specific reports on the science and on the forcings and on all of these esoteric parts of feedbacks, this yeah. witchcraft, then, then it's like, well, yeah, but why would the scientists lie about it? Okay, well, then I'll describe that side of it. No, 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 now you're not concentrating on the science. So it's the pincher movement of always trying to get you, essentially, you can't be all things to all people at the same time. So they'll try to say that you're ignoring this or that. But you're exactly right. In fact, as I say, I, I've been interested in this subject since the foundation of the website. And I, I there was the point at which I was following the day-to-day, everyday updates yes. on what's up with that and all the other climate blogs and every single thing that was being reported. And I read all your reporting on it and I knew every, every sort of turn in the argument over the last several years, I must admit, I'm not keeping up with it on that kind of day-to-day basis because at a certain point, I know enough to know that clearly this is a trick essentially that's being played on a mostly ignorant, mostly naive, mostly trusting public. And that is the point. Yeah. Now, okay. So what are they doing with this agenda? And I've, at the very least, I've convinced myself, yes, this clearly is a bunch of trickery and woo that they're trying to shove on the public. So what do we do with that? And that's kind of the point that I arrive. And I've arrived at that quite quickly with this COVID nonsense. I'm not at this point concentrating on masks and how, oh, you know, did, did that affect infection rates and that kind yes. of uh, looking at charts and things. I'm, I'm well beyond that. I'm looking towards, oh, and now they're talking about the extinction of homo sapiens. Maybe, maybe we should devote a little bit of attention to that guys, rather than trying to argue with public officials who are enforcing mask mandates or whatever. I realize that's important, but it kind yeah. of seems to be missing the bigger picture. Can you can you give me the the sort of the TLDR on 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 Bill Gates or maybe provide an a- appetite wetter for your for your two hour um, series because um, I mean he's obviously heavily involved in this but is he is he just a kind of a high level but still junior player or or what's 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 the deal here? I'm always careful to say that I don't think he is the top of the pyramid or directing all of this, um, but he is clearly a, at least a key finance conduit for so much of this research. And as much as I did in that two-hour documentary, I I was really just concentrating on the past year and a half and all of this craziness, but there's much more. Um, Of course, the climate change agenda, the bio bio lab grown meat agenda, the, you know, change over the entire dietary habit of the human species and uh, 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 contrails in the air to block out the sun as part of climate change and all of the, all of the craziness that Gates is directly funding. But anyway, um, specifically, I structured my documentary in a way that I imagined even the sort of normiest of normies would be able to follow the thread into the deeper part of the story. So starting out just talking about his monopolization 
essentially, of global public health, the global public health space over the past couple of decades. In the same, obviously, in a parallel way, what he did with Microsoft and Windows, he was attempting to do in the public global public health space. And you can cite very mainstream sources, the head of the UN's uh, malaria program and other things saying, you know, the Gates Foundation has an outsized influence on the space here. And essentially, whatever they decide should be the way that we go is the way that we go, because that's they're funding all of the research that's going on here. So if there's a cheap and simple solution to these sorts of things and a very expensive pharmaceutical intervention, they tend to fund the pharmaceutical intervention and not telling you, by the way, oh, yeah, he's heavily invested in a lot of these big pharma companies. But anyway, so we can see that it's sort of being steered in a certain direction. And there were many people who were ringing that alarm along the way, but it gets, of course, it doesn't get adequately covered in most of the media because, again, as I point out in that very report, he has directly funded most of the media. Yeah. He's created entire branches at The Guardian and other places for reporting the, on the global Telegraph. public health. Do you think they're going to report about the Gates Foundation's influence on global public health? Of course not. So that that's the first level to understand. Mm. And then, okay, so what's he doing with this power that he's wielding in this global public health space? Well, then you start looking at the vaccination agenda. He starts in 2010. This is going to be the decade of vaccines. And he starts by committing a billion dollars or whatever it was. And funding organizations, CEPI and Gavi and all of these types of organizations that are seeking to well, I, of course, immunize the world, which, again, most people will take straightforwardly. OK, he's trying to make sure that these wonderful, valuable medical interventions get to as many people as possible, including the poor developing nations that couldn't afford them. That's a good thing. Right? Question mark. Well, uh, us leaving even leaving aside the questions that hang over various UN uh, and WHO administered immunization programs that have gone on in the Philippines and Kenya and others where there have been disputed reports of sterilization agents being added to the vaccines, etc. And there is documentable, I mean, you can read the Rockefeller Foundation yearly reports from the 70s and others. I have them cited and linked in my documentary um, where they're talking about developing abortifacients um, through uh, vaccination, etc., etc. So that exists and that is there, but I don't think it's necessarily um, it hasn't been implemented in that way to this point, at least not so overtly. But I mean, there are questions about um, Gates sponsored trials of, uh, I believe it was Gardasil and Cervarix, question mark. I, uh, anyway, some of those types of, uh, of vaccinations for HPV in India and some of those trials and uh, being called out by the Indian government, etc. And yada, yada. So there's clearly some questions surrounding that. But beyond that is where it starts to get really strange and interesting. Because suddenly you start getting these organizations like Gavi, the Global Vaccine Alliance, which has as part of its mandate to create a healthy market for vaccine manufacturers. So it's not all about philanthropy and yay, we're just doing it to save right. the earth. Exactly. But beyond that, then you start getting Gavi and these types of uh, alliances forming other groups or partnerships with groups like ID2020, which is seeking to leverage immunization to make sure that every human being on the planet has a digital identity that right. they will be tied to as part of a, so that they can access their health records. Of course, that's what it's about, right? And then you get Gates directly, for example, hand in hand um, with the Indian government in developing their rollout of ADHAR, the biometric ID system, the largest biometric ID database in the world, over a billion people enrolled in this. Um, that, uh, and then when, uh, they did the demonetization of the 100 rupee notes or whatever that was back a few years ago. Yeah. You had Gates was there saying, you know, this is great. This is the way it needs to go. It'll help the uh, springboard digital payment systems in India. And India can be can can use that with their Adhar system. And he he seems to be a connecting point for so many of these agendas. And when you start to see the vaccination drive merging with digital identity, merging with digital currency, yeah. then you start to see where this biosecurity state is going. So that's the way I lead people through this. And then in the fourth part of the documentary, I talk about Gates and himself and his ideology and where his roots. And although, uh, of course, I can't definitively say, it seems he does have eugenical beliefs mm -hmm. um, that go back to uh, his father being on the board of Planned Parenthood and other such things that I think inform an understanding of who Gates is and what really motivates him. I, at the end, I don't think it's about money. Although, hey, for the 
the the most mainstream of normies at the very least they can understand the profit motive okay well there you go this wonderful philanthropist giving away his wealth has so generously given of himself that he has gone from a net worth of 50 billion in 2010 to 100 billion in 2020 to 100 and whatever billion in 2021 he keeps getting richer and richer as he's giving away more and more of his wealth that's strange isn't it but beyond the profit motive i don't think once you are in the 100 billion dollar category i don't think you're wondering so much about where the next billion is coming from so much as what that billion can get you and what is what is someone like Gates truly motivated by? What is it about at the end of the day? I don't think it's about money. I think it is about control. I think it is about power. And as he has openly stated for decades, his main driving concern is the growing human population. Yes. And we have to do something about that. Isn't that funny? That's exactly the same concern that, say, John D. Rockefeller Jr. and then JDR3 and the Rockefeller family generally was so heavily interested in back in the early 20th century when they were explicitly motivated by eugenics. And here's Gates in the 21st century carrying on that legacy. Yes, I think this is the mistake people make, that they try to rationalize the thinking of people who are in a stratospherically different league from them. And there's no, no point trying to get in the head of, Bill, of, of, of a multi-billionaire because they are not like us. They don't think like us. So to, so to go, they wouldn't do that. Why would they do that is, is, a, is a fruitless fruitless enterprise. Um, yeah, not fruitless, but I think I think you're right. We have to be aware of our limitations and being able to understand the motivations that these people are working from. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, you, you say you don't want to be blackpilled. I mean, I, I must say my experience of this has been I've actually taken the white pill. I've become much more religious in a, in a way just completely surprised me. Absolutely. Just a bit like sort of. um C.S. Lewis, surprised mm. by joy. It's mm. it, it, you know, I think I I do think there is actually ultimately, um, you know, that that God is is um, Christ is our savior, um, which has been a, a weird thing for me. Um, mm. But just, I would assume you grew up in an Anglican. Oh, family. totally. But that's that's mm. kind of the opposite of religion. That's kind of an anti-religion. Mm. <laughs> it's you know, I mean, I'm familiar with all traditions. You know, we sang. We sang psalms at school, and I was thinking, right. why are we doing this thing which hasn't even got a tune? You mm. know, what, what's all that about? And we had, we had, we even had congregational practice on, on Saturday mornings before classes, so, you know, like where you'd get taught to sing mm. the hymns of the week. It was like my education was probably the last gasp of the, um, mm. of, of, you know, the, the melancholy, long withdrawing roar of, 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 of organized religion in, in, in Britain. But I was thinking, we, we can we we could we could if we wanted to just revel in our misery and and accept that it's game over but that seems to me a you know i like to think of us like we're in spartacus so have you seen that you remember the scene in spartacus where um uh Laurence Olivier and and I can't remember who plays his wife. You know they have a sort of private gladiatorial combat, and the and there's the black guy versus Kirk Douglas, and the black guy throws his spear up into the gallery, and they, they you know it's a gesture of defiance, and I think that's where we need to be. Mm. Um, what can we do? What can we do to yeah. fight back? Interesting. Well, okay, I'm I'm I'm. <sighs> I must admit it's been years since I've been Spartacus. So all I remember off the top of my head is I am Spartacus. No, I'm Spartacus. Of course, the famous scene, right? Yeah, and we get crucified what? in the Appian way. That's not fun. <laughs> no, no, no. But, but. <laughs> yeah, let's not cut to the end. Let's let's stick on that scene for a little. Um, because what does that scene tell us? It's in the sort of communal act of defiance. Uh, the realization that if they can't single us out and make us the individual, you are the peg sticking up, you're going to get hammered down. If we are all doing it together, we actually really can, um, can, can overturn this system of control. At the very least, we can make it impossible for them to implement the system of control. But this has always been, this is, this is the problem essentially, which is that I am, 
more and more increasingly aware that the only thing that I can really control, the only thing that I have at least any ostensible control over is myself and my actions, my determination. I get to choose what I do, what I do not. And I can be physically enslaved and imprisoned and whatever, but mentally until they come up with the vaccine to make you into whatever, a lobotomized uh, uh, zombie, at any rate, I get to control what goes on between my ears and who I am. Um, and that's the baseline of my freedom, my individuality, who I am. Um, I like to think I can influence the course of my family, etc. But <laughs> my, my wife might have things to say about that. And my children are still quite young, but they are growing and becoming autonomous. So I don't have control. But no, at the end of the day, I have control over myself and my actions, what I do. I can choose not to participate in the system, but I can't make anyone else rise up. All I can do is spread information that hopefully will allow people to see and recontextualize what I think we are all seeing and experiencing, but in a different way, in a way that allows them to understand what is happening and that we are all contributing to the building up of this system of totalitarian control in many ways every single day. What we choose to spend our time, our energy, and our money doing is in some way either contributing to the building yeah. up of this society. We are buying the literal surveillance technology that we carry around in our pockets and all of this other stuff, or we are choosing to, to invest our time and energy and money in different ways that hopefully will build up alternatives. And I want that to become the widespread realization that eventually we can have people standing up. I'm Spartacus. No, I'm Spartacus. And realizing that if we withdraw our time, our energy, our consent to this system of enslavement, we still hold all the cards. It is the vast majority of humanity against a very few people who are really determined to bring about this post-human, transhumanist nightmare, whatever is coming into view. Um, once that realization really starts to take hold in the yeah. population, then it's game over for the they, them, those. But it is a race, is it not? That and I used to think, I used to at least take some solace in the fact that even if all of everything I'm doing is wasted breath and whatever, it's going to get dark and tyranny happens. But as long as the human spirit survives, there will be resistance. It will be overcome. The cycle will repeat. There will be times of rising tyranny and falling tyranny. That's just humanity. But when we start talking about changing the species at a genomic level, when we start biodigital yeah. convergence and down this path toward what is human, then it's a very different game altogether, isn't it? We don't have generations of time or infinite amount of time for this cycle to keep playing out. At some point, it becomes, will the human species survive or not? And <laughs> I'm yes. sorry, I'm sorry to in inject this dark gray pill in the conversation, but it is where I'm at. Um, yes. Without that widespread realization, that change in consciousness, I don't know what will get us out of this. I was just reminded, I had to, I had to Google it while you, while you were talking about creating that spark and you know you, all you can do is put out the information it reminded me of um the uh uh latimer latimer to, to ridley when he was being burned at the stake do you remember that uh play the man master ridley we shall this day light such a candle by god's grace in england as i trust shall never be put out i mean i, I don't know what he did actually say that i mean it, it must be quite difficult yeah. sort of constructing um, uh, measured prose when you're when you're being about to be burnt alive but but maybe yeah I, I i i think i think you and i are on the same mission and even though i was i was probably longer in normie world than you were we've 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 come to the same place and i it's 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 a joy being next to you in the foxhole <laughs> fighting yeah fighting the fight I, trust me i appreciate these interactions that are happening more and more frequently now um for many many years these types of interactions with people who had been in normie land were impossible essentially yeah um but these conversations are now happening for me on a weekly basis people that i would not have thought would be in the voxel with me hey nice to have you here no. and that's i mean that is at least in one small way that is a reflection of something that is happening on a societal scale right now people are definitely having their long-held paradigms challenged in various ways. And unfortunately, there are the people who will double down and put their entire identity in making sure that they are the good, willing, obedient serfs on this global plantation. 
And yes, sir. Yes. Trust the science, whatever you say. Yes. I'll get a tattoo of my vaccination so that I'll remember it forever. And yeah. That sort of thing. But there are people who are looking at this and perhaps for the first time in their life thinking, what's going on here? This is, this is not right. This is not normal. And that is, I think, what we have to capitalize on in any way possible to open up the space for these conversations rather than shutting them down. So I'm always glad to see other people in this foxhole. If the foxhole gets big enough, it becomes the world. And then we don't have to worry about what's happening outside the foxhole, right? <laughs> yeah, I think actually be a depressing place there to be if, it, if we're just in a, in, a, in a giant foxhole for the rest of our lives. I'd like to, I'd like to take back the planet. I was looking the, last night, We've been getting these, these amazing skies, and I've been wondering what's going on. I mean, they're like surreally good skies. Like, like when I was at when I was at school, um, the art the arts we had a very good art centre, and there was there was this this as, a, as one of the reference book there was this collection of sci fi art with these um, you know sort of Frank Frazetta and all these these uh, yes album covers and things like that all these kind there was a real vogue in the 1970s for like these strange other worlds and things and and realizing them and you know with spray paint and stuff and details and I was looking at that sky and I was thinking that sky is as good and unreal and fantastic as anything in the sci-fi book I, d- I don't know what do you know anything about this are we going through a kind of weird asteroid belt something it could be. I certainly don't know directly what you're experiencing there. Um, I could cite some of my previous work on stratospheric aerosol injection, which, of course, is the fancy name for chemtrails and that I, sort I know, of thing. Finally, I've, I've, been, come, I've yeah, come around to that one. Yeah. Yeah. I'll have to, I'll have to check well, I, again, as someone in the climate change space, I know, you know, for years they've been talking about these experiments that they could do to inject nanoparticulates into the atmosphere in order yeah. to block out the sun. I know we, they've been talking about this in a theoretical kind of way. But they never would, but, would they? Hmm, I wonder if it's been going on for a bit longer than that. Um, and I know there was the phenomenon of luminescent clouds that were very strangely um, glowing at night that was uh, that certainly made the rounds in social media a few years ago. But uh, I don't know what's going on in the UK at the moment. Um, I do often cite back to things like the X-37B, I believe it is, the uh, the space plane that the U.S. has, that goes up for years at a time, and they will report when it goes up, and they'll report when it comes back, but its entire mission is secret. What it's doing, where it's going, what, you know, what payload it may or may not have, who knows? I mean, there are huge question marks surrounding so much of this that... Who knows what, you know, billions upon billions in the secret budgets and things that are going on that are affecting the skies. How will we ever know until you see that train of stars going past and you go, what's that? And then you look it up and it's, oh, it's don't worry. It's Elon Musk and SpaceX Starlink. <laughs> they just released another 57 satellites. And now there's this new constellation that travels here. Just don't worry about it. Yes, <laughs> it's probably for your good. I, um, James, I, we've, we could, we could have gone off in, we could have done this podcast over like 10 different times and had 10 equally fascinating podcasts. So please may I request, will you come back on again sometime and we'll have a, we'll, we'll talk about all the things we didn't talk about this time. Absolutely. I'm happy to do it. Um, and everyone, um, please remember um, to support me on Patreon and Subscribestar um, uh, or at my uh, dellingpoleworld.com. I really appreciate your support. It's very helpful. Uh, check out James's. James is, James does deep dives. I don't do. I, I skitter over the surface. James is kind of the, the yin to my yang, or maybe you're the yang to my yin. Um, but I really recommend his stuff. It's really, it's really good and well researched and solid. And you can see James is a trustworthy fellow. So thank you very much, James. It's been a pleasure having you on the pod. And see you again. Well, as I say, I I appreciate you reaching out. I appreciate the kinds of conversations that you're having again with Naomi Wolf and other people that you might not have expected to talk no. to. But here we are in the foxhole, so I'm glad to have you here with me. Oh, please, will you go to a, a noodle bar and and eat some noodles for me? Um, I imagine you <laughs> do that, don't you? I might even look up this uh, show you're talking about, but I don't have Netflix. It's so really charming. Fun. You've got to see it. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Midnight Diner. Anyway, thanks a lot. Sayonara. Right, is that right? Is that right? Is that very good? Good. Excellent. <laughs> you're you're about ready to come over. <laughs> good. All right. Thanks right. a lot. Bye bye.